quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Now, remember that old TV sales pitch? You know the one. But wait, there's more. Well, that used to mean something good was going to come next. Not in this case. The Department of Homeland Security is now warning about, wait for it, an America facing more volatile threats from within in the months ahead. It's issued a really alarming new bulletin warning the violence in this country could get even worse in the summer months and the run-ups to the midterm elections. The reasons why are, frankly, as stomach-turning as they are eye-opening. They're saying that people on extremist online forums are encouraging Uvalde copycat attacks. How cruel. But wait, there's more. There's America's old foe, disinformation. It seems disinformation is popping up to such an extent that it too could fuel further violence. But wait, there's more. As campaigns are gearing up for the midterms, the DHS expects calls for violence by domestic extremists to not only continue, but actually to increase. But wait because there's still more. It's not all about elections. And no, the DHS also does warn to look out for the fallout from potential Supreme Court decisions. That must shock you. I mean, namely, we're talking about the Roe v. Wade decision. It should surprise no one that there will be a visceral reaction to whatever the court's final ruling ends up being. But Homeland Security says the reaction could not just be visceral, but indeed violent. And it's not limited to just one side of the issue because the agency has actually flagged both abortion rights supporters and opponents for advocating violence. And the summary, well, let me tell you what it says. The summary is that the primary threat of mass casualty violence in the United States stems from lone offenders and small groups motivated by ideological beliefs and or personal grievances. Now, just pause on that for a moment. That's the primary threat of mass violence in this country, it comes from within the United States. Now, that does not mean that foreign adversaries are not stirring the pot. They certainly are. But the primary threat to the U.S. remains us. So what does that mean, I'm wondering, for our global standing? Has America lost its ability to condemn violence in other places when our own government is warning of threats right here in this country? Imagine what that would mean to a world that refers to our own president as the leader of the free world. Now, this Homeland Security alert, the new one, comes out as the Senate is holding a hearing on the threat of domestic terror after the racist massacre at Top Supermarket in Buffalo, New York. And I was absolutely transfixed today by the words of the son of the oldest victim killed in that attack. Her name, Ruth Whitfield. Now, his name is Garnell Whitfield, Jr. He's a retired Buffalo Fire Commissioner, and now he's a grieving son who's directly challenging people in power to step up and finally do something. You elected to protect us, to protect our way of life. 
Is there nothing that you personally are willing to do to stop the cancer of white supremacy and the domestic terrorism, terrorism it inspires? Because if there is nothing, then, respectfully, senators, you should yield your positions of authority and influence to others that are willing to lead on this issue. My mother's life mattered. My mother's life mattered. And your actions here today will tell us how much it matters to you. Brings tears to your eyes. Think about that question. It reminds you a lot of what Senator Chris Murphy had to say about why are we here if not to do something? And I'm wondering if the senators that he was addressing and talking about the value of his mother's life, did they hear him? Will House lawmakers listen closely tomorrow? The testimony of 11-year-old Uvalde survivor Mia Cerillo. She is a little girl who smeared her own friend's blood on her own body just to have the gunman think that she, too, was dead. Did any member of Congress watch Uvalde native and actor Matthew McConaughey's emotional plea for action on guns at the White House today? Nine-year-old Maite Rodriguez. Maite wanted to be a marine biologist. These are the same green converse on her feet that turned out to be the only clear evidence that could identify her after the shooting. How about that? Can both sides rise above? Can both sides see beyond the political problem at hand and admit that we have a life preservation problem on our hands? Or for Mia's sake, can both sides actually walk the walk? Her shoes, the only way to identify her little body. So what can actually get 60 Senate votes? Certainly not banning assault rifles, we're told. Listen to what two GOP negotiators and another Republican senator said to CNN earlier. Why do you think that people need to have AR-15s in this country? You're talking about a constitutional right to keep and bear arms. People who are law-abiding citizens are in good mental health and uh, aren't a threat to the public. In my state, they use them to shoot prairie dogs and, you know, other types of varmints. And so I think that there are legitimate reasons why people would want to have them. That's used for, for sporting events, for uh, uh, sporting activities all the time. You shoot prairie dogs, the AR-15s? I mean, I'm from Minnesota. It's the home of the Gophers, but I didn't realize that AR-15s were used to actually shoot them. That, that surprises me. Probably many of you who own weapons as well. So what do we want to prioritize in this country? We've been hearing a lot of positive things today on the bipartisan gun reform negotiations. The White House says that President Biden is optimistic, believing any step, quote, is a step forward. Not exactly the definition of high expectations. Let's bring in some other minds into the mix. We have Casey Hunt, Ana Navarro, and Jonah Goldberg with us tonight. I mean, I don't mean to sound tongue-in-cheek, everyone, but the idea of saying you got to have an AR-15 because you might want to kill the occasional prairie dog, I I don't understand that's actually going to be persuasive to anyone. But I'm wondering if your perspectives, when you think about where we are, is there room for optimism? Is there room for the United States to suggest that this time really will be different? I think it's I think it's really tough. Honestly, the reason why John Thune is saying that it's not because he thinks it's actually going to make 
a difference or convince anyone that this is a great idea. It's because he knows that there are people in his state who are going to, he's up for re-election, mm. right? There's people in his state who are going to vote against him if he takes away their AR-15 that they use to shoot prairie dogs or do whatever the else they do with it. Uh, the reality is, you know, there is a deep cultural divide on this issue. And I think the plea that you heard from Matthew McConaughey, you know, he went in there and he said, look, I'm from Texas. I'm from this place. I am not, I mean, he thought about being a politician, but he's not. He said, we got to look at this as humans. And that's what Washington's been so bad at on this issue. I mean, I, so I covered um, the first, the, the post-Sandy Hook attempt to mm. do something about this issue. Um, I followed, and it was the most difficult story I have ever had to cover in my entire career, following those families from Senate office to Senate office with just the pall of their children's death on their faces, begging these senators to do something. Democrats controlled, they had more seats in the Senate, they controlled the White House, and they could not do anything. They went from this giant package to this tiny, skinny thing, just background checks. They couldn't do it then. Now they know they can't even do comprehensive background checks. They had to skinny down the background check bill. So, I mean, I'd be interested in Jonah's perspective as a Republican on this too, but the, the question that I have is, how much will it matter to actually get something done, anything at all? How symbolic would that be for Republicans who could then go and say, oh, okay, I didn't, lose, I didn't lose my seat in Congress. We all did this together. Maybe we actually can try and fix this. But imagine yeah. that. I mean, losing your seat in Congress is the calculus over a loss of human life. I mean, that's really the calculus? It do seems you, it is. Do you know these people? I don't, but you know what? That is the truth. That's what. That's the hard reality of the rhetorical question. Yeah, so uh, just quick correction. I don't consider myself a Republican. I do consider oh, myself conservative. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And, um, and I actually do know people who... Ascending. I actually literally have a very good friend who shoots uh, prey dogs with an AR-15. So there's that. Wow. But um, I don't I don't like shooting cute things, never mind vapor, vaporizing them, but that's, that is what it is. And... I think there are a lot of people who hear these questions about why do you need these guns for this, that, or the other thing. If you, if you are an ardent Second Amendment supporter, what you, you never hear, the way you think about it is, um, you know, why do you need to worship that God? Why do you need to assemble with those people? Why do you need to use that speech, right? Because it is a fun, they consider it a fundamental right, and to say you have to justify your fundamental right is a bad framing of the question in their minds. Um, I there actually, are other areas where people have to justify that right. The First Amendment comes to mind, right? The idea of everything is not an unconditional in a civilized society notion. I mean, the idea, I know you're no, saying no, the, no, the retort of I, it, I, but I, I mean. I, I, I get the point. But, you know, Joe Biden says this all the time about how um, no right is absolute. And he's absolutely right. But the Second Amendment isn't absolute. There are a lot of gun control laws in this country. Right. I don't own a machine gun. Machine guns have been banned <laughs> since the 1930s. Um, but the reason I am hopeful about this is that I do think that... Um, uh, Senator Murphy has the right idea that the first, the, the first thing you have to do is convince Republicans that you can vote on some kind of reform and not pay a terrible price for it. You have to take off this notion that any movement towards uh, gun reforms in any way um, is a death knell for a Republican. And so if you, if you go big, it's just not going to work. And I saw that happen in Florida. I live 30 minutes from Parkland. Mm. Yeah. And I saw us pass red flag laws after Parkland. I saw us increase the age to be able to buy an AR-15 to the age of 21. Listen, I'm, I'm hopeful because what choice do we have? I've, you know, my husband has 12 school-age grandchildren. I've got a 32-year-old teacher niece, a niece who is a teacher, and is terrified 
of going to do her job. I've got a cousin who was killed at Pulse and whose parents, MJ and Fred Wright, also want Jerry's life to matter. So what choice but do I have but to be hopeful? And so what do I see as different? That Sandy Hook, we now know Sandy Hook was not a one-off. We've seen Parkland. We've seen Uvalde. We now we saw Columbine. Yes, we now know that we this is not happening once every 10 years, which should not be acceptable. It's happening once every 10 hours, once every 10 days. We were still burying the victims of Buffalo when Uvalde happened. Mm-hmm. And I say thank you to Matthew McConaughey for using his platform. Nobody can accuse him of grandstanding. He's walked those streets. This is a little town of 15,000 people. He knows that park. He knows that plaza, which is now filled with little crosses. And he's using his platform so that we can be talking about it and we can all realize that your children are not safe. Your children are not safe. Your child is not safe. And my husband's grandchildren are not safe. They say that to me and and I think there are so many mothers, right? I think about my... You know, you drop your kids off at school. I mean, when you ha- we had to do that after Uvalde, it's that's the kind of like visceral, deep reaction that that I think people are having, that the country's having. And I think the question for the these, case, it's, sorry, it's so true. I mean, I, when you said that, I had a panic attack. I mean, when I when Which my, da- when my me, daughter I thought, first I got showed chills. me her her kindergarten classroom, I remember walking into that classroom and she was so excited to show me her seat. And the first thing I thought was. My God, it's the first desk in front of the door. And I thought about having her seat changed. You could have some chance if a gunman were coming. A gunman of her kindergarten classroom. And then I thought to myself, how selfish am I? Because now I'm putting another child in danger. But the, that, that, that's our calculus, Casey. But, but Laura, what's the calculus? worse than both of you having that fear is the fact that there's little children in America who are aware of what's happening that have the same exact fear. That there are teachers in America who, in addition to being underpaid and overworked and being told what they have to teach and having all these books banned and being, you know, feeling shunned if they are gay, now they're also being told you've got to arm yourself and you've got to protect yourself and you've got to act as a first responder. Being a teacher in America has become a dangerous profession. What kind of country are we? And so it's got to come to a point and it's got to come to a time where American citizens and American voters pick up the phone, call their senators and say, enough, damn it, pass something. Sadly, as you all know, we're going to talk about this more. It's not just schools, synagogues, it's movie theaters. And apparently in the name of Prairie Dogs, Casey, Anna, Jonah, stick around for a moment here. Up next, a rare interview with the mayor of Uvalde. Exactly two weeks after the shooting massacre, he was willing to answer a few questions from CNN, including this one. Hearing what you've heard so far from the officials, do you have confidence in the local police department to continue their duties? I do. Really? Should he? talk about that in a moment. And plus some perspective from a police chief in another small Texas school district when CNN Tonight returns. We're hearing from the fourth grade teacher who was trapped inside the Uvalde classroom with the gunman. And after he was shot twice... Arnolfo Reyes says he had to play dead for 77 minutes until officers finally took the killer down. Did you feel abandoned in that moment? 
by police, by the people who are supposed to protect you? Absolutely. After everything, I get more angry because you have a bulletproof vest. I had nothing. I had nothing. You're supposed to protect and serve. There is no excuse for their actions. And I will never forget them. So the shooter killed every single student in your classroom. Yes, ma'am. I lost 11 that day. And I just went to my parents and said, I'm sorry. I tried my best. Of what I was told to do. Please don't be angry with me. Oh, it's hard. It's hard to hear the guilt that he is burdened with and should never have had to bear. Please forgive me, he's asking those parents. And I can't recall the last time I heard from the powers that be in Uvalde. But 19 children and two teachers were killed that day. And we still don't know why it took so long for police to move in and why their stories have changed multiple times. Even the Uvalde mayor says that he's in the dark. We need answers to what happened at the school. There's an investigation going on and we'll find out what happened. I want those answers just like everybody else. But why is he still waiting too? I mean, the Uvalde County DA says it'll be a while. That was the word. It'll be a while before her office releases any new information. In the meantime, we've got nothing from school police chief Pete Arredondo. So what does this mean for accountability and school safety going forward? I want to bring in Texas school police chief Bill Avra, who oversees a police force just like the Uvalde School District. Thank you for being here, Chief Bill Avra. It's when you hear this, I always wonder what's going through the minds of other law enforcement agents in this country who are hearing this, who are waiting, as we all are, for answers. Do you feel sympathy for the officers and not being able to provide information? Do you find yourself casting or dispersions or giving the benefit of the doubt? What goes through your mind? Well, thank you, Laura, for having me on. I, it is it is absolutely devastating. Uh, as a career law enforcement officer of over four decades, I cannot imagine uh, the pain of, of the victims, families, and the community there. It is absolutely unconscionable that uh, this, this act occurred. Why are we still waiting for answers? I mean, I, I know everyone always wants to play as we're the Monday morning quarterback on issues that are benign, let alone as tragic as this. But why do you think they're still waiting for answers? Is it about a union? Is it about lawyering up? Is it about trying to get all the information before you have the whole picture? What is the delay about? You can think about. Well, uh, it's hard to say, uh, not being on the ground there in Uvalde. Uh, I suspect some of it is uh, wanting to take enough time to get it right. Uh, we did hear some missteps early on, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's more, uh, it, it does create a uh, problem with with survivors and with family members by all means but uh, I think that it's more of trying to 
piece together the mountain of evidence that is involved in an incident of this magnitude to be able to uh, be definitive in what went went wrong. You know, you hear these conversations all across the country. Parents are afraid. They're wondering if their children are safe. From most place, places, school summer break has not actually begun yet. We're still sending our kids back to school. Are you feeling in your own community some of those concerns from parents, from your own um, officers who are looking to you to figure out, hey, we got to have a change of plan here or we have to re-implement something or follow a different protocol? What are you on your watch? What's happening? Well, of course, we're out of school for summer now. We mm-hmm. uh, we ended uh, we ended on the twenty seventh of May, so uh, we're we're out right now. We are having conversations with our community. Uh, I have fielded a number of questions from parents and from school board members, our, our administration. Uh, we are working as a team to review our processes and our protocols and our procedures. Uh, to be able to reassure uh, come August that that we are uh, in a position to do everything humanly possible to protect their children. Do you think you are in that position, though, ultimately? I mean, you're hearing about the 19 officers, and I know we're still learning information as you're speaking about, but you just think about the notion of the presence of some of these weapons. Your forces aren't carrying them. They're not the ones who are going to have all the equipment that might be able to ultimately um, defend in a holistic manner, at least initially. Are you? Do you have concerns, given the current laws, that you will have shortcomings, that you will be ill-equipped to try to thwart an attack like this again? Well, I can tell you this, that, that from myself down uh, all the way down through my, uh, my department, uh, we're going to go in. We're going to make an entry in. We're going to go to the threat. We're going to do our best to neutralize the threat and then protect life and and limb thereafter. Uh, we have equipment uh, and we train f- uh, regularly. We use the alert protocols here in Texas almost exclusively. And in what fact, what does that mean? The alert uh, protocols. What is that, sir? The what is that? Alert is the that's the advanced law enforcement response rapid response training. They're uh, an agency at Texas State University in San Marcos, and they have uh, developed the rapid response protocols uh, that came to, to uh, into being after Columbine that says that we don't stand around and wait on SWAT teams. Uh, the initial responders, it could be one officer, it could be two officers, uh, whatever it is, form a team and go in to see what they can do to neutralize the threat. Well, Godspeed. Thank you, Chief Bill Avra. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Something has to change. I mean, a lot of people are trying to help make a difference, including some with very famous faces that you recognize, like actor Matthew McConaughey, a Uvalde native. We're going to show you some more of his very powerful appeal for gun law reforms from the White House briefing room. Next. Whatever you thought of Matthew McConaughey's words from the White House lectern this afternoon, it was undoubtedly a remarkable moment in the briefing room. 
The Oscar-winning actor got very real in the 22 minutes he spoke from the microphone of presidents and press secretaries, pleading for lawmakers to take action following the massacre in his beloved hometown of Uvalde. You know, his mom was actually once a kindergarten teacher, less than a mile from Robb Elementary. McConaughey shared numerous personal stories about some of the victims, like Irma Garcia, one of the teachers who was killed. She and her husband, Joe, had been putting away money for the past three years to paint their house. Their goal was to eventually retire. Irma's husband died a day after his wife, possibly from a broken heart, according to his family. And McConaughey spoke of nine-year-old victim Maite Rodriguez. And he brought her green Converse sneakers with a heart drawn on them to highlight how so many of the victims could only be identified through items on their bodies or through DNA. We thought it was important to share more of his profound message, which the nation saw on live TV today for 22 minutes. Here are some of those key moments. We need to recognize that this time, it seems that something is different. We are in a window of opportunity right now that we have not been in before a window where it seems like real change. Real change can't happen. You know what every one of these parents wanted, what they asked us for? They want their children's dreams to live on. That they want their children's dreams to continue to accomplish something after they are gone. They want to make their loss of life matter. Look, we heard from, we heard from so many people, right? Families of the deceased, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, Texas Rangers, hunters, Border Patrol, and responsible gun owners who won't give up their Second Amendment right to bear arms. And you know what they all said? We want secure and safe schools, and we want gun laws that won't make it so easy for the bad guys to get these damn guns. We need responsible gun ownership. Responsible gun ownership. We need background checks. We need to raise the minimum age to purchase an AR-15 rifle. To 21. We need a waiting period for those rifles. We need red flag laws and consequences for those who abuse them. Responsible gun owners are fed up with the Second Amendment being abused and hijacked by some deranged individuals. These regulations are not a step back. They're a step forward for a civil society and and the Second Amendment. This should not be a partisan issue. There is not a Democratic or Republican value in one single act of these shooters. It's not. But people in power have failed to act. So we're asking you, and I'm asking you, will you please ask yourselves, can both sides rise above? Can both sides see beyond the political problem at hand and admit that we have a life preservation problem on our hands. Maybe set an example for our children, give us reason to tell them, hey, listen and, and watch these, these, these men and women. These are great American leaders right here. Hope you grow up to be like them. And let's admit it, we can't truly be leaders if we're only living for re-election. So where do we start? By voting to pass policies that can keep us from having as many Columbines, Sandy Hooks, Parklands, Las Vegas's, Buffaloes, and you vow these from here on. We start by making the loss of these lives matter. He spoke for 22 minutes.
Extremely powerful words. Now, it's also powerful to hear. For 55 more minutes, a teacher had to play dead in a classroom with 11 dead children around him. Will the people with the power to act on his pleas, will they do something? We'll continue this conversation next. A powerful plea for action on guns at the White House today from actor Matthew McConaughey. We've been playing a lot of the sound this hour really because it's resonating with so many people. And I want to bring back our panel who are nodding along and reacting to as we're all listening to it. You had some really visceral reactions and really strong ones about what you were hearing. You pushed back a little bit. Yeah, so, uh, look, I, I think I agree with everything that he said. And I share the moral outrage entirely. And I share the moral outrage with everybody on this panel about how horrific and just morally repugnant these, these slaughters are. But when I listen to you guys talking about how you're scared for your own kids, and I have a daughter, I, I get being scared. If, you, if we're going to start telling people that they should be scared about this is going to happen to them, we should at least put some of this in perspective. There are about 54 million kids in Americans who go to K through 12 in America. In the last 29 years, um, 170 kids have been killed in school shootings. That's, how many, how uh, many, how does that compare to like if my kid goes to school in, in Great Britain or Canada? I mean, you see yeah, some no, parents are like, look, look, should one, we leave? One know? school shooting, look, <laughs> it's I, I, too it's many. The, for me, my approach is the exact same way it was about, the, uh, about terrorism. The number of people killed on 9-11 was not, you know, you could say, well, more people die in car accidents every year. I don't care. It's unacceptable. The moral outrage is entirely valid and justified. But if we're going to be telling people, you can't switch lanes. You're absolutely right to be outraged about the crime. But if we're going to tell people they should be terrified about their kids being dropped off at school, we should yeah, remind them that their kids are more in danger we on the drive to school statistically no, no, than they no, are no, at the no, school. No, no, we no, were no, no, we can't say, do this. No, but we, we can't. That people no, should be in a child's life cannot be a statistic, right? You can't tell the parents of Joaquin Oliver of Parkland. You can't tell Fred Gutenberg. Yeah, but that's you moral can't bullying. Tell my I'm making a basic point to say that you shouldn't tell people that they should be terrified. If it were your but child, it was not gonna. It would not be a, a statistic. It would be a tragedy that you would never, that. ever. That's, that's moral bullying. From. Why that's, is that's it moral? Why is it moral bullying? Well, well, making it well, sound as if I don't have compassion for these no, people. Of course you do. No, it's a statistic I'm, and probabilities no, that we should. I'm saying you shouldn't tell American. You shouldn't tell the audience that this is the thing that they should be so terrified with, paralyzed with fear about their own kids when their kids are more likely yeah. to die from a lot of other well, things. Well, hold on, so Jonah, 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 but that, but that, of, of going to school. And you know what happened because of that? What happened because of that is that we have car seat laws that yeah. pass, that we have seatbelt laws, I, I that we that. have speed laws. Okay. And so it, it used to be that more people died of car accidents. More kids die of car accidents. More pe- people die, more kids die of pool accidents. We have fences around pools more kids because we passed regulation in, in, this is one of the only places where not doing anything has become status quo and something as a country we accept. And shame on us yeah. for accepting that. I don't, and I'm not morally bullying you. I don't I've got children I care about. And you do too. Yeah, I do. But when, you, when you're making it sound as if you point out that there are, the risks to your kids are 
that there are greater things. If you want to protect your kids, there are other things that you have more control and agency over than random madmen shooting up schools. So we shouldn't do anything about it? No, I don't know why you keep wanting to go to that. This is because a... you're making this into a statistics conversation. No, I am trying Instead to... of about the fact that there's children being buried yeah. in coffins adorned with Superman yeah. decals. And, I'm, and I said, I am morally outraged by that. I think it's grotesque, and one shot child is too many as far as I'm concerned. But if you're going to take that moral outrage and then tell people they should be paralyzed with fear that this is going to happen to them and their kids, you're doing them a disservice. I am not telling them they should be paralyzed with fear. No one is telling them they should pick up the phone and call their senators and telling them that it's been 10 years since Sandy Hook and that we haven't done anything is a national shame. So paralyzed with fear and paralyzed with acceptance and resignation is what we've been for the last 10 years. And it's enough of that. No more paralysis. Get your asses in gear and call your senators. That's fine. I'm doing analysis. I am not doing activism. And if you want to tell everybody to call their senators, that's fine. That's not my job. The point got killed. That's more bullying. Wait a second. Hold on. Excuse me. I want to hear from both of you and I want to hear from Casey, but I also want to clarify this point. Moral bullying, the idea of providing, you want to provide perspective. You want people to know that there are other ways that children die. Got it. But both can be true. You can also be fearful of gun violence and also talk to your kids about other aspects of it. Casey, I mean, you, you have the same moral outrage, but you also have the idea of the objectivity and the approach to it. What, what can be done? Right. Well, so I just want to say to your point, Jonah, that I was not saying people should be afraid of this. That was not what the point I was trying to make earlier. I was trying to say people are because they see what has happened. They are afraid. And your point is well taken that there are a million different ways that your kid can be harmed. But the reality is, as Anna was saying, there are regulations and rules that we all agree on. It is much, much harder to get a driver's license and buy a car than it is to buy and use an AR-15, which is kind of, when you think about it, You know, we regulate cars because they're giant machines that are capable of killing people. I get that. And that's why I use the comparison to terrorism. The whole point of terrorism is to scare people. And as I said, the statistics are not are are beside the point in how you seriously should take terrorism, whether it's domestic terrorism or international terrorism. But our system is not equipped currently. And, you know, this is part of a much bigger conversation about whether our entirety of our government is equipped to handle the challenges uh, because it is so divided and in many ways our system of electing representatives and how they operate in Washington is so broken that it doesn't line up with this, the, the vast, you know, Matthew McConaughey used the phrase the middle, right? He talked about both sides and those words have become like verboten in our DC yeah, language, yeah. right? But it's, the, it's, it's, it's literally, it's not a political statement. It is the vast center of the country who frankly are completely just Outside of our political process, because they see it and they like. Well, guess what? Hold on. You know what? You know what? Of the middle, a commercial break is coming in the middle of this discussion (laughs) right now. We're coming right back to Casey, Jonah, and Anna in just a moment. And in fact, the most populated state may send a message to the entire nation tonight. Just three years ago, we saw a famously red California county turn blue. But are voters in two key liberal cities ready to shake things up themselves? Look at the heated issues, including a recall campaign, a lot around the issue of crime and violence in this country. More in a moment. Do you feel safe? A simple question with a simple answer that for far too many is just no. And not just for mass shootings, but for many, it's about the uptick in violent crime overall. As I'm speaking to you right now, there are voters that are answering the question of whether their elected officials 
keep them safe or make them feel safe? And they're answering it in the voting booth. In San Francisco, the progressive DA is facing a potential recall, while in L.A., the race for mayor is centered around the questions of crime and homelessness. And it's part of the reason U.S. Congresswoman Karen Bass is being challenged by former Republican Rick Caruso. I'm running for mayor because the city we love is in a state of emergency. Rampant homelessness, people living in fear for their safety. Now, the number of people living without a home in California far exceeds any other state. Of course, we can't conflate homelessness or housing insecurity with crime. But some voters do. And images like this are far too common in California. And they have a powerful influence on voters. L.A. and San Francisco are two of the most liberal cities in our nation. And both are experiencing quite a dramatic shift in the perception of the role of policing and accountability from just two years ago in the wake of George Floyd's murder. But from then to now, the numbers of assaults and auto theft in San Francisco, well, they're up, even as things like robbery and burglary numbers are down. And in L.A., both murder and property crimes and violent crimes are up. Those numbers are reflected nationally. A majority of Americans say they worry, quote, a great deal about crime. Let's talk about what this means for Democrats in November. When you guys hear this and think about what is the top of mind issue for voters, it goes back to your point about what people are concerned with. You talk about the moral um, bullying you mentioned, but there's the reality that crime is up and there is cause for concern. It it is up, and you can see it in in the statistics across the board. I mean, you know, anecdotes are not data, Right. But I certainly have experienced this as a resident of Washington, D.C., that there is more crime in my local neighborhood, in my community. There are more carjackings. We're hearing you know, difficult stories. And I think the way that this ties into our national narrative, you've got a couple things going on. I mean, you've got a lot of social factors that are really hard to solve with policy, that income inequality, the, a mental health crisis. We're, we're having difficulty. Many people are on the streets uh, because they're, you know, they have mental health problems, et cetera. And, and that's sometimes what people equate with crime or, or people who simply are dealing with other issues. But there's, there's this lawlessness, this sense of lawlessness in the wake of the pandemic, I think, that has a lot of people unsettled. Um, and when you combine it with the, the, the recent history of some Democrats using the slogan, defund the police, you've got a lot of people connecting these two things. They, they're connecting what they're seeing and feeling in their own lives to what Democrats were saying, to the point that a lot of national Democrats are trying to run away from that defund mm. the police slogan. And, and it's a tough one to do. There's also just a very 1970s show feeling to all this, right? Where people aren't necessarily rational about these things. Inflation is, feels like it's out of control. Gas prices feel like they're out of control. In the wake of COVID, we had huge spikes in air rage, road rage. People didn't like being cooped up. Um, They're you, still driving like right, maniacs. They definitely it's are. insane. <laughs> so when the, you feel like things are out of control. And, uh, and I live in Miami. You want to talk about driving <laughs> like maniacs? Like never lived in there a city or in a country that has one party rule or one party is in control of things and the status quo feels incredibly unsettling, it's a big problem for whichever party it is. And so places like San Francisco and L.A. in particular, where homelessness really is out of control, public drug use really is out of control, it's all put together in a big blob. Look, I think the common thread here is accountability and holding authorities accountable, right? And so there's things that you depend on your local authorities to be in charge of, like like crime in your city, like potholes, like traffic, like there's things that you depend on your state authorities to be in charge of. Like, I really like Ron DeSantis to make sure I can buy home insurance, which right now has been canceled. And there's thousands and tens of thousands of other Floridians 
in the same boat. There's things that we depend on and we want from our federal authorities. And so the people that are in power, if they are Democrats, if they are Republicans, are the ones that are going to be held accountable when citizens are unhappy with the way things are going at the different levels. It's called democracy, right? It's called which accountability and voting. I mean, it is. Yeah. The idea, one thing that's very concerning, as we all talk about, is if the response is taking it to the voting booth to address these issues, I think we're all fine about this notion. Yeah. But we're, what, two days away from the first public hearing on January 6th where you take it to a violent extreme if you're unhappy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that that's the thing that I think really is where what we're grappling with. And you started the show out with this, with the Department of Homeland Security saying that, that increasingly people are going to try to solve their own, whether it's their own personal problems or what they perceive to be problems in the world, with violence. And, you know, for me, January 6th was an attack on my workplace. I was covering the Capitol. I was there. And it was one of these, these things that was just incredibly unsettling, not just for all of the the public and and critically important Democratic-related issues, but because it was a demonstration of a deep insecurity in my personal sphere, in my personal world. And I think there are more and more Americans who are starting to experience that. And the more instances we see that are publicized and and become these, these huge things, the more there are copycat attacks. There are other people who think this is how we're supposed to solve our problems. And you combine that with the fact that there are fewer and fewer people who have faith, even if they don't want to be violent, they don't have faith that our political system can fix. Listen, I fled a revolution in a civil war. For me, it was an attack on everything I thought America stood for that was different from places like Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba and the places that, you know, that people flee from and come to America as their refuge. If we're asking those questions, we're in a different world, aren't we? Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.